Well, it's wonderful to be back with you. We were here three and a half years ago and uh, had a wonderful time here at Friendship. You were one of our first stops on our first, as we started our tour as the Bob Jones University Science Ambassador, and everybody was so friendly to us, I thought we'd come back and see you again. And uh, since that time, we've been all over the country, and uh, we've been, of course, out west and down south in Texas and in Florida and New England, and so it's wonderful to be here again. I heard that you're getting ready for Christmas. I didn't know Christmas, it, it felt warmer out there to me, but it sounds like you're getting ready for Christmas. Let me suggest to you something. We are bringing around with us a new remastered version of Sheffy, about Robert Sheffy. One of the places we were in our travels, we went to West Virginia and Virginia in the area where Robert Sheffy ministered as a circuit-riding preacher back at the end of the 19th century. And uh, more people have been called into the ministry and been saved through this uh, um, story of his life. We did this back in the 1970s at Bob Jones University. Now they've taken all those originals and they've remastered them. It's on DVD and Blu-ray here. So that's available to you if you uh, Give my wife $15. She'll be happy to give you one of these after the service. Love for you to get that into your hands. You give those Christmas presents, all right? And uh, I think you'll be blessed by it. We've been blessed by it over the years. Well, back in 1918, I, to me, 2018, I retired from the um, classroom and uh, became the science ambassador. And you say, well, what would encourage you to spend your retirement years doing this kind of ministry? Well, number one, I couldn't find the word retirement in the Bible anywhere. And uh, we've, uh, and I've had a burden for this. I have a burden because there are those giving out false doctrine, who those, we would call them theistic evolutionists. Uh, the BioLogos organization has been a part of this. And uh, they've been pushing this idea that God uh, brought everything about by evolution. But, of course, that's not biblical, and I'm trying to counteract that. And then we find that people have questions about Bible and science, and Lord willing, tonight we'll have an opportunity for some, some questions, answer some questions about the Bible and science, and I'd love to be able to do that. If you'd like to write it out ahead of time and give it to me before we leave this morning, I'd be happy to answer your question first, as we have time. And uh, then I'm concerned about Christian young people getting their training, especially those who are who have uh, talent in science and engineering and health professions, getting their training, their, their tertiary training at uh, secular schools where they just get evolution and humanism. And I want to let them know that they can uh, go to a place like Bob Jones University and get a very fine science and engineering education uh, from a Christian worldview. Uh, I just heard that our engineering class at Bob Jones went up by 40% this past year. So a lot of demand for that kind of education. We have a table on the back, uh, in the back there, and uh, there's a little bit of literature there for you. And I know, know that some of the young people don't go to the school here. You won't be seeing us during the school week. Uh, so, but if you're homeschooled or you go to public school and you'd like to be a part of the drawing we have for a T-shirt and we give out some gold pennies and things, uh, feel free to fill that out. We'll get you some more information about Bob Jones University as well. Uh, I'm going to ask my wife to come up here and uh, read a testimony for you. We had a young lady uh, from Texas. She lived near Baylor University, and she was trying to figure out whether to go to Baylor to study 
uh, biochemistry or to come to Bob Jones University to study biochemistry. And I ask her to write out her testimony about why she chose to come to Bob Jones. I'm going to ask my wife to read that for you. I had hoped that visiting Bob Jones University or a secular school near my home in Texas would help me decide which to choose. But after seeing both schools, I was highly impressed with the faculty and facilities at both. At Bob Jones, I appreciated that my classes would be taught by professors, not grad students. And I liked that the professors were able to make time for their students since their primary responsibility was to teach rather than research. At most secular universities, most of the professor's primary responsibility is research, which can be all-consuming. But ultimately, the decision came down to what I wanted as my foundation. I knew that I did not want my groundwork in science to be filled with evolution, which permeates into every field in the sciences, and most schools teach evolution as foundational. I wanted a Christian teacher, well-versed in current scientific information, who could help me separate what is true from what belongs to the reigning theory of evolution. Having a Christian professor committed to helping students learn science while keeping the Bible as our ultimate source of truth was more important to me than the research opportunities being presented at the secular school. Thank you, hon. We appreciate that. Well, today we're talking about beauty the hallmark of God's creation. So our, our text is in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11. I'll put it up here on the, the screen for you. Oh, I didn't put it on the screen for you. There it is. There it is on the screen. Okay, so Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11. Let's turn there, if you would, with me in God's word. And it says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, he hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he hath set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. So how do we know that there's actually eternal significance to everything? You know, this is certainly a fascinating verse that resonates with me as a student of science, the main idea expressed by Solomon is that man's, God's plan is unfathomable, and yet God has also placed within the heart of every person a sense of something eternal and a desire to know the eternal significance of what we do. How do we know there's actually eternal significance to everything? It tells us here because God has made everything fit beautifully in its appropriate time. So please join with me today in a quest to appreciate the beauty that God has created and to understand how the, that created beauty gives meaning to our existence and helps us understand how everything fits together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to talk about your uh, creative power and your wisdom. Thank you, Lord, for the songs that we sang and heard sung uh, that exalt you as the creator God. And we pray, Father, that you'll focus our minds and hearts upon the beauty of God and the beauty that you've created in this world. Guide and direct my words. May your Holy Spirit attend them in our lives. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. So what is beauty? According to Ecclesiastes 3.11, our text defines beauty in terms of two attributes implied in the original language. 
the beautiful things God has made all fit together in appropriate way at the proper time. For example, I could say a baby's face is beautiful. When I say that, I'm implying, of course, that it's symmetrical, uh, but I also say, implying that it's appropriate to the age of the child. An 80-year-old man with a baby face would be weird or grotesque. But God has talked about that in Proverbs 20, 28. It says, the beauty of old men is the gray head. So gray hair appears at the appropriate time and fits old men perfectly. I knew a man in his 80s, and I guess he wanted to look young, and so he would dye his hair jet black. And I thought that looked kind of weird. <laughs> I don't know what you think about that. Don't want to offend anybody out here, but God has given old men the gray hair uh, because it fits, it fits them at the appropriate time in their lives. Another example, when I say that a musical composition is beautiful, like the one we just heard, I'm implying that the melody and harmony and rhythm all fits together and the music is appropriate to the occasion. Now, my name is Matsko, and it means teddy bear in Hungarian. And my father was born in the old country, came to this country when he was three years old, and uh, he received a seven years of education, went to the seventh grade and dropped out then to help with the family store, like many people did back in those days. Uh, and his taste in music ran in a certain direction. He liked Sousa's marches. And we had those big RCA records, and we'd put them on the, on the phonograph there and play those, and we'd march around the house to Sousa's marches. But I know you like good music, but you know, I didn't hear any Sousa's marches here today. I mean, I, I talked to your, your song leader here and asked him, what's, why no Sousa's marches? Well, even though Sousa's marches may be good music, it's not appropriate to the occasion that we're in. It has to be appropriate to be beautiful. So how, do we, how does the dictionary definitions of beauty fit in with Ecclesiastes 3.11? You know, it's true that certain clothing or styles look ridiculous in the wrong era. One definition of, of beauty in the, in the dictionary is prevailing style or taste, rage or fashion. They have to fit current tastes in order to add rather than subtract from beauty. You know, the temptation, I think, is to say that beauty is only in the culturally conditioned eye of the beholder, what moves us personally. But taste for natural beauty and for arts travel across cultures with great ease. I understand, for example, that Beethoven is adored in Japan. Now, we used to take, there we go, we used to take uh, mission teams to Australia. We did that for 23 summers. We took Bob Jones University students to Australia uh, for missions training. And my my daughter is in Australia, and her husband's the pastor of Open Door Baptist Church in Melbourne area of Australia. And uh, we thought <clears throat> maybe we would retire to Australia. And we tried, but once you hit 65, they close the door if you don't have the socialized health care 
been paying into that, so that was kind of out. So this is, this is plan B that we're doing right now. But when we used to go to Australia, we'd always take them to the um, Sydney Opera House. If I ask an architect to prove to me that the Sydney Opera House has objective beauty, he would speak to me of patterns and curves and borders and brightness and contrast and purity and smoothness, all features that contribute to beauty that are recognized all over the world. It's not just fashion. The Sydney Opera House has objective beauty because it has many beautiful features that are combined to produce a beautiful overall effect. This beauty is real. It's not an accident. It points to a designer. I guess you knew that that was design. It just didn't come up by itself. Well, we could also talk about beauty as a beautiful person. In the dictionary, it says a beautiful person, especially a beautiful woman. I'm certainly not going to deny that there are plenty of beautiful women in the Bible, like Job's daughters and Sarah and Rebecca, Esther, Abigail, Abishag, the Queen of Sheba, not to mention some handsome men like Joseph and David and Absalom and Daniel. But how do we know a beautiful person when we see one? Do you ever wonder about that? Well, science has the answer. Beauty by the numbers. Uh, what they did is they took uh, faces from all over the world. You know how when you go to the optometrist, uh, they have those lenses. They say, does this look better? Does this look better? Does this look better? Does this look better? Sometimes I can't tell the difference. I don't know about you. Uh, but that's what they did. They took faces from all over the world, and they put them in front of people, and they said, you know, which is the more beautiful face? And so we learned from that what beauty looks like by the numbers. For example, uh, a beautiful person's face is about one and a half times longer than it is wide. Next, we find that people unconsciously look at three segments of the face. So from where my hairline used to be to between my eyes, from between my eyes to under my nose and under my nose to the bottom of my chin. So if those three segments are the same, same size, then we consider that person to be more beautiful. Now remember, by the way, that I can see you up here. So don't do this during the message, all right? All right, wait till you get at home to see how beautiful you really are. And there's other things like um, on a perfect face, the length of the ears equal to the length of the nose and the width of the eyes equal to the distance between the eyes and so forth. So through that process, they found the most beautiful person in the world. And this is her. I forgot her name right now, but she's an 18-year-old shop girl in London, and she was determined to have the most beautiful face in the world by numbers, and she is very pretty, of course. You know, it's interesting that when the Creator made Adam and Eve, he made them symmetrical on the outside, but asymmetrical on the inside. Symmetrical, I mean, I have two arms, two ears, two legs, and so forth. But if you looked on the inside of me, you know, I'd have my stomach over here and my liver over here and my intestines down here and so forth. Just think if we had jellyfish skin, okay? That wouldn't be very beautiful at all, would it? And uh, evolutionists, by the way, have a problem with this. I have a whole message I do on, on symmetry and left-handed and right-handedness and so forth. But uh, they don't have any, any reason why organisms develop being symmetrical on the outside, but asymmetrical 
on the inside. There's no reason for that as far as evolution is concerned. But I'm glad God did it that way. Here's another definition. A particular grace, feature, ornament, or excellence, anything beautiful as in the beauties of nature. We see that in the Bible. Oh, there's my jellyfish skin. We see that in, in the Bible. We see in Philippians 4.8, um, in a, Paul's different command about what a believer should spend his or her time thinking about. Philippians 4.8, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. So notice that the beautiful things from a Christian perspective are true, that is valid, honest, reliable, honorable or noble, worthy of respect, right, just and upright, pure, clean or morally pure, lovely, amiable, agreeable or pleasing, of good repute or admirable, that which is praiseworthy because it measures up to the highest standards. Now, because we have a free will, we can spend our time thinking about ugly things if we choose to, but it's clear that God will hold us responsible for our thoughts. Now, some people might say, well, the, the human body, the, the, the symmetrically proportioned human body, uh, maybe that should be put on display, unclothed human bodies. And, uh, but there's a problem with that because when we see nakedness in the Bible, it's always associated with shame. For example, in Revelation 3.18, it says, I counsel thee to buy me of gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Over and over again, whenever you have nakedness in the Bible, it's associated with shame. So why is it not associated with beauty? Because it doesn't meet the purity test, among other things. And then we see in the fourth definition, an assemblage of graces, our properties pleasing to the eye or the ear, the intellect, the aesthetic faculty, the moral sense. Aesthetics, that word aesthetics is concerned with beauty or the appreciation of beauty. Notice that this definition blends aesthetics with ethics, as does Philippians 4.8 and other passages in scriptures. Now, nobody doubts that this book, the Bible, is an ethical book. We need to understand that the words of scripture were written everywhere, inspired and written in an atmosphere of aesthetics as well. You know, we start off in the Garden of Eden where we, uh, we see that every tree was pleasant to the sight uh, in Genesis 2.9. And the last vision for mankind is an abode in a city whose gates are of pearl and streets are of gold in Revelation 21. So the imagery of scripture is from beginning to end a picture of aesthetics wedded to righteousness. The beautiful and the good and the whole range of holy scripture. Now, how should Bible-believing Christians think about beauty? There's much beauty in this world. We're able to find beauty in many things. A work of art, piece of music, magnificent landscape. And we're drawn to beauty. You can even move us emotionally, but it doesn't always leave us satisfied. We always want more. So some years ago, we used to take the teams to Australia, 
And we would try to get to Australia before the team members did because we were older than they were and we needed to get over jet lag. You know, we had to get a jump on them before we, when we got there. So we found ourselves on the west coast of the United States uh, with an extra week. And I thought, where should we go on the west coast of the United States? You know, where would be a great place to go? And I thought, well, as a creation scientist, where I'd like to see is Mount St. Helens. Okay, and you're familiar with Mount St. Helens out there in Washington. And one of the th great things about Mount St. Helens from a creation science point of view is you got all these layers that were laid down. And if you just looked at it, you'd say, well, you know, by the standard reckoning, it took millions and millions of years to lay those down. But we know how long it took. It took hours and days and weeks to lay those layers down. So it shows how geological layers could be laid down relatively quickly. And then we were in the visitor center. If you've been there, they show you a film. It's kind of a, a grim film because it tells you about the 62 people that did not listen to the warnings to evacuate the area and were killed by the uh, volcano there at Mount St. Helens. And once they tell you that sad story, then they raise the, the screen and then through the picture window, you can see five miles away, you can see Mount St. Helens with its snow and so forth. And I thought that's the, here I'll show you a picture of what we saw. And I thought that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I just wanted to drink in that beauty and not forget what I saw on that occasion. But you know, the next day, I wanted to see something else beautiful. So we went into the Columbia River Valley and we saw Multnomah Falls there and that was beautiful. And next day I wanted to see something else beautiful. So we went to the Oregon coast and saw the waves crashing on the rocks. And next day I wanted to see something else beautiful. So I went, we went to Mount Hood and saw the snow-capped peak that was there. You get my point? In other words, uh, the beauty th that we see uh, is not something that we can just take as our own. In other words, it, it doesn't last. We always are looking for something more satisfying as we go through life. You know, we can learn a lot from King David about how to think about beauty. Think about King David. He was surrounded by beauty. He was a poet, of course. He wrote many beautiful poets. He was surrounded by uh, beautiful women, too many beautiful women, I'm afraid, too beautiful art, beautiful music, the beauties of nature. And though surrounded by beauty every day, he cries out in Psalm 27, verse 4, he says, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So what he's saying is that the greatest gift that God could give him would be the privilege of spending his time contemplating and reflecting on the wonderful features of his God. David understood that the beauty with which he is surrounded on earth was just reflected beauty. He understood there's such a thing as source beauty. The beauty in this world can never bring us lasting satisfaction. Only divine beauty can. So this source beauty, what is this source beauty? How can I, how can I describe it? C.S. Lewis, of course, had a way with words, and he put it this way in his book, The Weight of Glory, and I quote, we do not want to merely see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, 
to become part of it. And my understanding of what Lewis is saying here is that now we look at a beautiful painting or we hear beautiful music. Uh, but sometime in the future, when we're, we're the Lord, we're actually going to be part of the painting, part of the beauty. We're going to be a part of the song. We'll be part of the symphony. You see what I'm saying? In other words, we are, are, are enveloped by it. We are part of it. It, it. We exist within it, within the beauty that we see. You know, 1 John 3, 2 says something. It helps us understand that. It says, Beloved, now we are the sons of God. It doth not appear what we shall be, but we know that when we shall appear, he, we shall be like him, for we, are, we shall see him as he is. But even with our imperfect, partial understanding, one fact is crystal clear. Jesus Christ is the ultimate source of beauty. Now, how do uh, secular scientists explain the origin of beauty? Well, according to Darwin and his followers, like Dutton, it all boils down to sexual selection. The example Darwin himself used for evolution of beauty was the peacock's tail, which developed the way it did, according to him, to impress the pea hen. Now, let's see. I took the liberty of pulling some peacock feathers off the peacocks here in the parking lot. So here we are. So here's some peacock feathers. You have to admit, it's a pretty big jump to get from peacocks to natural beauty, to art, to literature, music. But somehow the evolutionists manage it because they don't have any other game to play. They don't know how else to, to talk about it. And peacock feathers indeed are amazingly designed. You know, the colors in the peacock feathers don't come from pigments. It actually comes from what we call thin film diffraction. The, uh, you have layers of keratin that are built up on the, on the feather in an exact pattern to give the beauty that we see. Let me explain this a little bit better. This thin film interference, maybe you've seen a drop of oil on the ground. You have pollution, okay? Look how beautiful pollution can be, okay? And so... Uh, so as the, as the light goes through, it, it reflects from both the oil and from the layer below it, and so you get this diffraction pattern that looks beautiful to us. That's the same way that God uses to produce the beauty of the peacock feather, and so without using any coloration or pigments of any sort. Um, so you have these, these uh, thin films of keratin are laid down in a particular pattern. Here's a picture of the peacock feather close up. And amazingly, the peacock produces a pattern of different colors um, is evidence of design, okay? This is, you know, you have to, uh, there's no clear function uh, that would produce this beauty. And this beauty requires a large amount of genetic information. So there's no way beautiful peacock feathers could have arisen by genetic accidents. Now, I'm not a peahen, obviously, but I think peacock feathers are beautiful as well. And uh, so why should I think of these feathers being beautiful uh, since I'm not a peahen? You know, that leads us to ask, why should the peahen select something beautiful rather than ugly? 
Some evolutionists claim that peahens select beauty because it corresponds to health, but how can a peahen recognize beauty? And why should a peahen associate beauty with health? No wonder Charles Darwin said this. You know, Charles Darwin, he, he was in a pious age, and when he, when he made public pronouncements, he would often speak them in a pious language. But when he wrote uh, private letters, he revealed his true colors, pun intended, okay? So Charles Darwin, in a letter to Asa Gray on April 3rd, 1860, said this, the sight of a feather in a peacock's tail, whenever I gaze at it, makes me sick. Makes me sick. Anybody feeling sick out there looking at these peacock feathers? Okay. You feel sick? Okay. So why, why, does it, why did Charles Darwin say that? Because he understood the powerful argument that the peacock feathers made for the creator God. And he was trying to kill God. He said that in his other correspondence. He wanted to put God to death. And uh, all he did was show his own foolishness. Well, let's, th- let's think about beauty a little bit more. Um, I have a, you know, we're sending a, a, a rocket to the moon. At least we're trying to. We're not doing very well at that. And uh, we're planning on going back to the moon and so forth. And there's a lot of, I could talk about the moon at great length about how it allows life to exist here on the Earth. You got a lot of engineering features of the moon that are important for the survival of life. But you also have to notice that it's beautiful as well. And this is kind of a hallmark of God's creative style, that he makes things not only with engineering, but he also makes them beautiful at no extra cost. It's easy for a creation scientist like me to get so caught up in the evidence of God's creation that I miss the obvious. God made his handiwork so clear that even a child can see it. The beauty of his work is inescapable and an undeniable witness to his existence. And the deeper we explore the world, the more beauty we find. Understanding creation isn't just about explaining matter or complex moving parts of living things, but added beauty. Experience tells us that beauty doesn't come by accident. It offers no obvious survival benefit, and many natural laws, like the second law of thermodynamics, promote deterioration, decay. God not only created the earth's beauty, but he also sustains it. In Luke 12, 27, uh, we see, consider the lilies, how they grow. So, Jesus points out that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like a single flower of the field. Atheist Steve Jones once wrote that evolution does its job and no more. That is why added beauty in creation is evidence for a creator. Only a designer can add beauty for the sake of beauty. You know, one example we can see is in the sky, for example. Uh, Notice how God made the color of the grass to contrast with the sky. How strange it would be if both the grass and the sky were green, or if both the grass and the sky were blue. That wouldn't be very beautiful at all. Sometimes when I would talk to elementary-aged school children, I'd ask them to ask questions about the Bible and science, and they'd try to think of the hardest question they could ask, and they would say, you know, why is the grass green? Why is the sky blue? Those are really hard questions, especially to explain to somebody at that age. I mean, I could tell them that the sky is blue because of Rayleigh light scattering. That doesn't seem to cut it with them, okay? 
Or I could talk about how the grass is green because it's a quantum mechanical effect and the grass absorbs parts from the red and the blue part of the spectrum. And that doesn't cut it with them either. So those are really hard questions. But you can see that when God designed the, the chlorophyll for the plants and the size of the air molecules and so forth, that there was no accident that he actually produced just the right color scheme for creation. Um, when you consider the color scheme of creation, it's as if an expert in art has coordinated and planned the colors with great care and attention. According to naturalistic views, it's a coincidence that the color scheme is so pleasing to mankind. But naturalism has a big problem. There's no random mechanism that could produce the color scheme, and no reason we should be able to see colors in the first place. So here's Horseshoe Bend Canyon taken uh, with a black and white camera and one with a colored camera, and which do you find more pleasing? Well, I grew up in the 1950s, and so everything was black and white back then. And I have pictures, pictures that prove it to you, okay? You can tell everything was black and white, okay? So God has given us the ability to, to find pleasure in the color scheme that he created. There are two things that are hallmarks of God's creative style, and those are symmetry, the love of harmony and balance and proportion, and economy, the satisfaction producing an abundance of effects from very limited means. So it's like the, the peacock feathers. There's, there's just layers of keratin rather than a very complicated way of producing color. Well, we can see that in other things like mathematics. You ask any serious mathematician, he or she will tell you that one of the reasons they became mathematicians is because mathematics is beautiful and it can even be elegant. You mathematicians can say, amen, right now, right now, amen, all right, okay. And I've had, had, had mathematicians get excited about that. But so you, the idea that mathematics is the language of science uh, is an interesting idea. Why should mathematics exactly describe the natural world we live in? All of us are aware of the fact to be a scientist or engineer, you have to be good at math, right? Why should that be the case? Well, I wasted 40 minutes of my time listening to a Nova special on PBS. They're trying to explain why math and science went together. And after 40 minutes, they decided it was some sort of optical illusion. It's not an optical illusion, okay? Okay, it's not an illusion at all. It's the same God who created the laws of mathematics, created the natural world that we live in. And those mathematical ideas of beauty and symmetry extend to sound and sound waves and music. Why do tones whose frequencies are in ratio of small whole numbers sound good together? Why is it the tones that are slightly off, like C and C sharp, produce a painful sound? Our daughter, Katie, who's a pastor's wife in Australia, uh, she decided to take up the piccolo when she was living with us. And so we were, we were used to many painful sounds <laughs> during those days. Belief in creation increases a person's appreciation of beauty because that person knows that beauty is the work of a loving creator. As the, as the hymn writer George Wade Robinson said, heaven above is softer uh, blue, earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs o'erflow. Flowers with deeper beauty shine. Since I know, as now I know, I am his and he is mine. 
So what is the message of beauty in creation? As we've already seen, the beauty of creation clearly reveals a creator to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. Isaac Watts wrote, there's not a plant or flower below, but makes thy glories known. The beauty of creation also shows that God cares deeply for man. We saw that in Matthew 6, that, that Jesus said, why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field. And we see how the lilies of the field were arrayed even more beautifully than Solomon. If it says, if God cares about the flowers and the beautiful flowers, how much more does he care about us who are the pinnacle of his creation? When you think of that detailed care that he's put into creating beauty and remember that men and women are the pinnacle of God's creation, it confirms how much God must care for every detail of his children's needs, every detail of your needs. The beauty of creation can also remind us of a wonderful promise in Scripture that God takes delight in his children and beautifies them with salvation. Psalm 149.4, For the Lord taketh pleasure in his people and will beautify the meek with salvation. Kind of like this. This is a pearl. And this is a cross-section of a pearl. And so how do you make a beautiful pearl? You take a piece of grit. And you put it inside an oyster, and the oyster actually adds little layers of nacre to it. Now, slowly, over time, uh, there's something like 6,000 layers in that pearl that you see the cross-section of right there. And so here, it doesn't start very beautifully, does it? But then you see that it, it, it coats that piece of grit with layers and layers and layers until it's a beautiful, symmetrical Pearl. So God transforms unclean sinners like us into beautiful new creations by clothing them in the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You know, the irony is that God didn't use beauty to bring us salvation, but he used ugliness. Isaiah 52, 14, as many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Or Isaiah 53, 2, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So it's ugliness that God used. You know, here's a picture of two crosses. I know that some people wear beautiful silver or gold crosses as jewelry, and my purpose here is not to talk about religious jewelry, but we can all agree there's nothing at all beautiful about a crucifixion with its blood and sweat and bones out of joint, victims gasping for breath, begging for water, faces distorted in agony. It's hard for us to understand how ugly the cross is, especially after all these centuries of using it as a symbol of, you know, a sacred symbol. Even the Latin word crux in Paul's day uh, was unmentionable in polite Roman society. But so, despite that fact, the Apostle Paul said in Romans 6.14, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. The glory was not in the cross itself, 
I've seen, unfortunately, I've seen pictures of Syrian Christians crucified by ISIS. Truly one of the most horrible ways of slow death devised by the black heart of sinful men. But Paul boasted only in Christ's cross, the work of Christ for him. That's all he took pride in. The cross is a symbol of shame. Because of the cross, the world system had lost its appeal to Paul, and he had lost his appeal to the world. And that is how the ugliest thing in the world became the most beautiful thing, at least in the eyes of Christians. That brings us to another ugly thing that Christ makes beautiful, and that is our feet. Romans 10, 15, and how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. There are a lot of people here in the congregation in front of me, you have beautiful feet because you've been sharing the gospel with others. You know, there's an unmatched beauty in one person sharing the good news of salvation with another, no matter how haltingly. When you tell somebody the good news of salvation and the cross of Christ, the ground you're standing on with your beautiful feet becomes holy ground. In the end, all the beauty in heaven and earth point to our beautiful Savior. Do you know him? Is it all beautiful to you? Now, I've been talking about the beauty of Christ. Is there anything in your heart that resonates to that? You say, yes, yes, Jesus Christ is the most beautiful person in the whole world. Or are you thinking, what's he talking about? You know, how can you describe this individual who died thousands of years ago on a, on a Roman cross? How can you describe him as being beautiful? And it all has to do with the gospel, doesn't it? Jesus Christ coming from the glories and beauties of heaven, taking on the form of man, coming as a, a babe in the manger, and then growing up to be despised and rejected by those he came to save. How is that beautiful? Well, it's beautiful because he came for me. He's beautiful to me, and I hope he's beautiful to you as well. And if he's not beautiful to you, you need to talk to someone here, talk to the pastors, and talk to those who those of us who know how beautiful Jesus Christ really is. So thank you so much. And, uh, and again, if you have some questions for this evening, uh, please feel free to write them on a piece of paper and we'll try to deal with those first. Let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer and then I'll turn it back to the pastor. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we could look at your beauty. Indeed, you are beautiful to us. Lord, it's, it's amazing you didn't use beauty to bring us salvation. You used ugliness, the ugliness of the cross. And Lord, as we look at this beautiful world that we live in, may we constantly be reminded of the creator God and how you love us and how you care for us, how we are so much more than the flowers in the field that are today and gone tomorrow. But Lord, that you have spent, lavished your care uh, upon us. And uh, to such an extent that you sent your son to die for us on the cross so that we live in a very beautiful place in the years to come with you. Thank you, Lord. And help us, Lord, to live like that. Help us to live beautiful lives for you. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.